Welcome to Sexplicit, a podcast which provides free, quality and up-to-date sexuality education. In this podcast, I will be talking about sex and sexuality explicitly. No topic is too taboo and no question is inappropriate. This is a safe and educational space to explore your deepest curiosities. Let me begin with a story. This story is filled with moments of danger and hope, terror and fulfillment, curiosity and excitement. You will hear about a mother using a typewriter under the blankets to type out educational material for her kids, an underground university, two sisters being suspended from every single school they were enrolled in, the sound of a family's footsteps running in the middle of the night to flee persecution, BDSM dungeons, escaping a cult, working closely with sex workers, and taking lessons in the art of bondage and suspense. This is my story, and every week I will tell you part of how I became so interested and passionate about sex and sexuality education. My name is Anissa Varaste, I'm a clinical sexologist, and this is Sexplicit. You may have heard this phrase before, that the biggest sexual organ in our body is the brain. I hadn't realized the significance of this until I was doing some research in my master's degree and later on when seeing clients. And then one day I had an epiphany, a light bulb moment, when I finally comprehended the extent to which sexuality is tied to our psyche, to our mind. So in this podcast, I will be talking about the psychology of sexuality and sex, rather than the physiology of sex. I may occasionally share with you interesting resources about masturbation techniques or methods for partners to explore things together, but predominantly I will be talking about topics such as overcoming shame, body image, sexual confidence, power exchange dynamics, BDSM, kink, open relationships, polyamory, recovery from sexual assault, watching pornography when you're in a relationship, out-of-control sexual behaviors, and our relationship with pleasure, or anything else that you would like to hear about. You can always write to me, either by leaving a comment under a specific episode or via Relate Sexology website. I am, of course, not an expert in all areas related to sex and sexuality, but I'm happy to research about any topic that is of interest to the listeners and dedicate an episode or a few episodes, depending on the topic, to answer your questions or guide you to suitable resources. For the first session, I've decided to talk about a topic that many of my clients, friends, and generally many people find intriguing and are curious about. Kink. Who would engage in such bizarre practices is one of the questions that I hear from many people. Kink is a very broad topic and it's in fact impossible to answer all the questions related to this in one episode. So I'm going to talk about the basics of kink and BDSM today and in the future episodes we will come back to this topic. 
I think the best way to start is to define kink. What is kink? Any sex or play that falls outside the lines of what any given society defines as normal or normative sex is considered kink. This, as you can imagine, can be a lot of different things. And contrary to what most people think, sex is not an objective biophysiological activity. Sex is in fact a social construct, and we will be unpacking that in this podcast series. What I mean by sex being a social construct is depending on where we live, sex and normative sex, what is considered normal, varies massively. In some parts of the world, oral sex is considered kink and not normal. And in some parts of the world, group sex is considered normative sex. Another thing that I would like to highlight is that the same sexual activity throughout one person's life can be considered normal or kinky. Say, when you were 17, what sort of sexual activities did you consider normal? Do you still have the same view? For many people, this changes throughout their life as they experience different things and go through different stages in life. Kink is an umbrella term that is used to refer to anything that is not considered normative sex or play. And I will explain why I say play in a little bit. Now, one of the types of kink is BDSM, and that is what most people have heard about. BDSM stands for bondage and dominance, discipline and submission, sadism and masochism. So B-D-D-S-S-M. And in short, we say B-D-S-M. When people say I'm into BDSM, or no, it's not for me. Most of the time, the assumption is that you need to be into every single letter of the acronym. And that's not true. You can only want your hands to be tied behind your back, and that's it. You're doing BDSM. If you like to be blindfolded, you are into BDSM. If you like intense sensations, biting, scratching, slapping on the ass, you're into BDSM. If you think about it that way, everyone does BDSM to some extent. BDSM or kink can be a lifestyle, meaning that for some people it's something that they incorporate in many aspects of their lives or they engage with a community or go to a scene where they can play with other people, meaning they engage with them in a power exchange dynamic. Now it's interesting for most people to know that kink and BDSM don't necessarily involve sex or sexual activities. It is about the psychological stimulation, the exchange of power, and for some people, physical sensations, but mostly it's the psychological pleasure. So it's a vast range of expressions. Some people identify with it as, this is who I am, this is part of my sexual identity, and some people say, this is what I do, something I engage in. The same as any other aspect of human behavior. Sometimes we strongly identify with a part of our life. For example, I identify as a dancer, as an artist, 
but some of my friends who share the same interest don't identify with it. For them, it's just something they do. So when it comes to King and BDSM, it's also a range, and it's really up to the person or the people to decide what they want to do, how they want to do it, how often, how much time and energy they want to dedicate to it, whether they want it to be sexual or just playing out roles and the exchange of power dynamics. What I would like to highlight is that power play is part of all relationships. In all relationships, there is an element of power play. We all have power differentials in our relationships that we may not even be aware of. The power and influence of one of the partners over the other could be because of their life circumstances, where they're at on social hierarchy, how much money they make, level of ability, race, etc. So all of these things influence the power we bring into a relationship. But in kink and BDSM relationships, this is intentional. You intentionally have more power than I do. But what is interesting is that even though we set this up intentionally for the other person to have more power, for example, for a master to have more power over a slave, but what happens in reality is that the submissive has the same, if not more power, in the negotiation and in setting up the parameters of a scene. It's the submissive person who defines the boundaries, and there is constant communication and interaction with that element of power. And of course, this is all consensual. I will talk about the details of negotiation for kink and BDSM in future episodes, as this is a huge topic in itself, and very important. I would like to talk about some myths related to kink and BDSM, and to debunk them. The first myth is people who do kink and BDSM are a small minority. The fact and the reality is that a lot of people do it. They just don't call it that. And it's a lot more common than what many people think. The other myth is that there must be a childhood damage and some early trauma that they are replaying. And the fact and reality is that we have many aspects of life to replay trauma and all the ways in which our childhood, culture or society have fucked us up. We may have chosen the wrong job because of it. We may drive aggressively. We might binge on food or alcohol. We might react passive-aggressively to our partners, our children or other people in our life. So my point is that in all aspects of our life, we can express all the ways we have experienced trauma, and it's not just through kink and BDSM. There are some people who engage in plain old missionary vanilla sex to cope with past experiences of trauma, and there are people who engage in kink and BDSM practices to cope or even recover from the impact of traumatic experiences. One of my favorite sexuality educators, Midori, defines kink in this way. Kink is childhood joyous play with adult sexual privileges and cool toys. So when we start reframing kink as play, 
We realize that people who engage in kink enjoy being in touch with their inner child. The idea of inner child, for those of you who may not be familiar with, is simply put, that inner childlike, innocent aspect of us who is playful, curious, creative, and sometimes when we've had traumatic childhood experiences, our inner child might be distressed or may not know how to emotionally cope in certain stressful situations. Now, kink is a creative way of being in touch with our inner child or children. And sometimes where there is a history of trauma, people use kink as a tool for recovery. If you're interested in learning about the therapeutic potential of kink and BDSM and how they can be used for potential recovery, I have developed an online training which you can access on my website. I talk about the potential therapeutic effects of BDSM, safety and how to discover what kinks you may be interested in. I will leave the link in the show notes. My first personal experience with kink was when one of my friends told me about a BDSM party in one of the city's clubs. I was very intrigued, and although I had no idea what to expect, I went along with my friend. At first I was nervous. There were many people in leather, some people were wearing face masks, some were chained, some people were topless, some were wearing beautiful latex outfits. There were all sorts of body shapes and sizes and ages. Of course, everyone was above 18, but there were some older people there as well, which I think is great, because in the mainstream culture and context, no one considers old people as sexual beings. Anyway, I held on tight to my friend as we went past people. Then my anxiety turned into curiosity. Although it looked scary at first, the expression on people's faces were friendly. They weren't, after all, a bunch of sick people getting together to torture each other, as I had thought. The highlight of the night was when I went to the beer garden. There was a large X-shaped cross where a naked woman was sitting next to. The woman was large in size and an amazingly peaceful expression on her face. She was meditating. It was a bizarre and beautiful scene. In the midst of the chaos of music, of people and noise, she was deep in meditation. Now the reason I pointed out her size is that one of the things that many people enjoy about BDSM and kink in general is that the sex and the play is not about how you look, but about what you can do, what skills you bring, how you can intrigue others. And as a therapist, I have seen people with body image issues, such as body dysmorphia, flourishing after engaging in kink for some time. Now, this is a huge topic in itself, and please don't hear me saying if you have body image issues, engage some sadomasochism and all your problems are solved. No. It takes time, a good understanding of safety and negotiation, and ideally a qualified therapist to support you through the journey. Anyway, back to the beautiful serene woman who was meditating under the X-cross. After a few minutes, 
a man approached her and they embraced and kissed each other on the cheeks. I could tell they knew each other and were close. The man tied her to the X-cross and started to flog her gently. He would check in with her every few minutes. After about 10 minutes, he was whipping her vigorously. The interaction between the two and the impression on their faces were a mix of gentleness and torment, kindness and intense sensations and emotions. I will never forget this scene, which led me to do some research about King Ken BDSM and to understand them better. Another myth is BDSM is about pain. For example, when we talk about sadism and masochism, people think, oh, you enjoy causing pain to someone or you want to receive pain, and that's horrible. Okay, let's unpack that. First of all, it's not about pain. It's about intense sensations. Something a little more intense than your default. It's kind of like spicy food. If you're like me and love chili chips, for example, you're familiar with the pleasure you get from that burning sensation in your mouth, the tingling, even the numbness of some parts of your mouth and your tongue. And for people who don't like spicy food, the idea may sound bizarre, but it's the same physiological sensation that people experience from going on roller coasters or bungee jumping. Our heart rates rise, our breathing increases, and more importantly, some wonderful hormones are produced, such as adrenaline. We feel alive. Now, going back to chili chips, my tolerance level for chili compared to most of my Persian friends is very high. Persians generally don't put chili in their food, so they're not used to it. But when I hang out with my Vietnamese friends and go to a Vietnamese restaurant, for the life of me, I cannot eat the chili they offer. So it's all very relative. And do I want the same spiciness every day? No, I don't. Now that we've discussed that sensation play is having something more intense than your default, let's go back to the word pain. The reason I think the word pain is used incorrectly in the context of BDSM is that people who enjoy receiving these sensations don't actually like pain. So imagine someone who is a submissive and is into the physical aspects of BDSM, for example, being flogged or whipped or tied up. If their dominant partner comes and out of nowhere, without previous negotiation, whacks their head, the sub would call the scene and they probably wouldn't play with this person anymore. But when we talk about sensation, it's the submissive person who defines what level of intensity and where on their body they would like to receive the flogging or the whipping. Another myth about kink and BDSM is people who engage in such practices don't have choice and agency over the desire and they're compulsive. Well, that's not true. Is it true that some people engage in some sexual or non-sexual activities compulsively, including BDSM? Yes. 
Around sense of agency, there is another myth that if I submit to someone, it means that I surrender all my agency to someone else. No. Submission can be a liberating and wonderful experience or fantasy for some people. We live busy lives, and it would be nice to once in a while to hand over somebody else piloting our pleasure. Hello, captain of my pleasure. Take me on this fantastic ride and let me just sit back and enjoy. This is not surrendering agency. Do we freak out that we are losing agency of our life every time we get on a plane or a taxi? No. The same thing here. Once in a while, don't we deserve a concierge service of pleasure? Another misconception about kink is if people are into a particular practice, that is the only way they can get off. And of course, this one is also not true. One of the things that I hear often in therapy from couples is when one of them is into a particular kink and they disclose it to their partner and then the partner is horrified because they think, oh my god, this is the only way they can get off, what am I going to do? And it's reassuring to them to know that this is just one way that their partner enjoys sex. And sometimes, as I said, it's not about sex. Some couples negotiate and one partner engages in power exchange dynamics and play without engaging in any sexual activities. And again, for some people, the threshold for sensation is higher or lower than others. Some people like sex more rough. Some people like very gentle touch. It's the same with BDSM practices. Before I tell you the story of how my journey began, we're going to have a very short music break. And while you're listening to the music break, sit back and relax. Okay, now I'm going to tell you how my story of becoming a sexologist began. I was born in Iran in 1983, and this was a couple of years after the Islamic Revolution, which is in my eyes the most horrific thing any country can ever experience. From very early on, it was obvious that the new regime wasn't a democracy, it was dictatorship of one of its worst kinds. I was born in a family who were not Muslim, and after the revolution, anyone who was not Muslim was either forced to convert to Islam, or they would be persecuted, and in many cases, executed. And my parents believed strongly in the Baha'i faith, and they didn't want to convert under any circumstance. So, the stakes were high. My parents were both expelled from university because they weren't Muslim and they wouldn't convert. And when my sister and I reached the age to go to kindergarten, the government wouldn't allow us because of our parents' religion. And this is where my story really begins. My parents decided to get together some other Baha'i children, my cousins and some other family friends, and have a kindergarten at home for us. 
but it was of course risky because they could simply go to jail for wanting to educate their children. They did it anyway, and as it became very successful, in fact my sister and I could read and write before going to school, other Baha'i parents around Iran asked my parents to share their knowledge with them, and so my mum started to type out educational material to distribute across the country. My mum had an old typewriter, one of those that you would put the paper in and it had a certain kind of, almost like a turning key. Then you would wind the paper in and line it up and then you would type and hear the click-clacks of the keys as well as the sound of the keys going against the paper and that magical sound of the bell at the end of the line of type. I loved that typewriter. But the problem was it was too loud and the walls were too thin. There was always a risk of a neighbour hearing the sounds and reporting it to the authorities. God, it sounds so crazy now. And if I hadn't lived this life and didn't remember it, I wouldn't believe it myself. Anyway, my mum would go under a blanket with a torch and the magic typewriter to muffle the sound and minimise the risk. This is the first part of my education, and as we go on, I will tell you how my unquenchable passion and motivation for learning led me to where I am now as a clinical sexologist. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end, and we have just scratched the surface. There are so many more interesting things that I can share with you about normative sex and kink. I promise to come back to this topic in future episodes. Thank you for tuning in and being part of this exciting journey of discovery. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and your curious questions. Do join me again for the next episode. Until then, it's goodbye for now.